Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court for Law 360. And filling in for Natalie Rodriguez once again today is The Term's executive producer and fellow SCOTUS nerd, Amber McKinney. Welcome to the show. How you doing, Amber? I've never had a better intro than fellow <laughs> SCOTUS nerd. Love that. So accurate. It's also great to be with you, Jimmy. We did get a chance to see each other in person just this week. We were um, at the Burton Awards at the Library of Congress in D.C., so I got to be in your neck of the woods. It was great to see you then as well. Absolutely. And we also kind of got a little bit of, uh, I wouldn't call it news exactly, but we got to see Justice Sonia Sotomayor. She came and gave a nice little tribute to the late Second Circuit uh, Chief Judge Robert Katzman, who I know was a guest on your show. He was. He was a guest on Pro Se several years ago. Uh, It was his first, and I think probably only podcast appearance. And he was just a lovely person. So it was a nice tribute from the justice. And we were also going to get another member of the court. Um, at least that was on the program for the Burton Awards, which is this uh, legal writing, annual legal writing award ceremony at the Library of Congress. For listeners who might not be familiar, Justice Gorsuch was on the program. He was scheduled to be interviewed, but according to uh, one of the MCs, he canceled the day of. Is he like busy or something, Amber? I don't know what's going on. I mean, how could he be busy this time <laughs> of year, Jimmy? What what could he possibly have going on? Yeah, I mean, it's such a fraught year. I wasn't entirely shocked that it didn't work out for him to come deliver remarks. There's a lot going on at the court. Yeah, he was, I, you know, I think he had handed down some concurrences or dissents uh, the morning of uh, the award ceremony. So it was, a, it was a fairly busy week. So like, let's just get kind of to the big takeaway of the week. It seems like the justices are back on track. I mean, we've been talking in recent weeks. I mean, Amber, when you came on the show, you were like, what's going on? They're not really getting any opinions. <laughs> yeah. They heard you. They heard the complaints loud and clear. And they said, okay, we're just going to drop 11 opinions in one week between Monday and Wednesday. So now we just got 18 cases left uh, before the summer recess. Just you know, 18. No, just no 18. big deal. <laughs> just 18. Um, so, I mean, it's looking like they could pull this thing off and, and finish um, at least, if not by the end of June, then by very early July, by 4th of July weekend. But there's some big cases in there. I mean, these are not like low-hanging fruit, easy ones. We got obviously the Dobbs case, the abortion case that is Bruin, uh, which is, you know, Second Amendment stuff. We got Carson versus Macon, a religious school subsidy case. Obviously, the case of the praying football coach and Kennedy versus Bremerton School District and, you know, climate change regulations in in the case West Virginia versus Environmental Protection Agency. So just so again, no big deal. None of these are that important. Well, it's starting to make a little more sense. Why? Gorsuch maybe couldn't (laughs) show up. Yeah, they've got some things on their plate for sure. So I don't know if you saw this, Amber, but uh, it was I think it was shortly after we recorded our episode last week on Thursday. You weren't here for that one, but um, uh, the financial disclosures for some of the justices dropped, and we got it's always fun. I don't know if you pay attention to those when they come out, but you get kind of little sneak peeks into the finances of the justices themselves. I mean, I love this because it's as close as we can get to almost like gossip column territory here. Um, it, it definitely gives some really unique insights into what's going on with their finances. Yeah. And one thing, I guess the big takeaway is that in addition to their not insignificant government salaries that they take home, they're taking home a decent amount of you know pay from other gigs that they got going on, probably most substantially in the form of uh, book royalties. We found out that Justice Amy Coney Barrett disclosed bringing in, and this is for 2021, $425,000 in royalties from publisher Javelin Group LLC. Now, 
I don't know about you, but I didn't know that she had written a book. In fact, she hasn't. It hasn't actually hit the shelves yet. This must be some kind of advance. Um, she reportedly has entered into like a $2 million book contract with a publisher for a book that has yet to actually come out. So this is kind of, I guess, the first installment of you know, what is a significant deal yeah. above her baseline salary, which you know, we know the Associate Justice of the Supreme Court in 2021 brought home $268,300. So that's, you know, I'm not a Who math. says there's no money in book publishing? You just have <laughs> to be a justice of the Supreme Court to get it. Exactly, exactly. You know, they also made some decent bucks from teaching, the justices that is. Uh, one school kept popping up, George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School. So we had Clarence Thomas making some money from George Mason. We had Justice Gorsuch making some money from George Mason, Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Side note here. So during the pandemic, the justices pretty much, you know, like everyone, stayed home and didn't do a whole lot of traveling in 2021 or in 2020. That appears to be back on in 2021. We found out that uh, Gorsuch and Kagan both attended a uh, George Mason, basically two-week seminar or something like that in Reykjavik, Iceland. Oh, fancy. Yeah, this was part of their National Security Institute. Um, Gorsuch was there. He was teaching a course there. Kagan was only there for a little while. But you can understand why maybe they're suddenly, you know, dropping all these opinions. They got plans. They got to get, you know. (laughs) Stuff to do. (laughs) Look, uh, my big takeaway from this is to achieve all my dreams, writing a book, going on a vacation to Reykjavik. I need to become a Supreme Court justice. Yeah. The ship is probably sailed on that for me, but a girl can dream. Never say never. So why don't we get into, you know, some of the decisions that we got this week. We obviously can't touch all of them, but I'm going to focus on uh, an interesting one right here before you tee up our our next segment on another fascinating pair of cases. But uh, for mine, I, I wanted to talk about uh, an interesting tribal case. Actually, it's really more of a double jeopardy case. It's called... Denespi versus United States. And the Supreme Court basically said, and this was on Wednesday when this decision was handed down, that a Navajo man who was prosecuted in a specialized Bureau of Indian Affairs court and later convicted for the same acts in federal court did not face unconstitutional double jeopardy. So the court says, you know, although the federal prosecutors, although federal officials, you know, prosecuted both of these cases, one in this uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs Court and the next in federal court, uh, double jeopardy actually only bars successive prosecutions of the same offense, not necessarily the same underlying conduct, right? So the offense, yeah, so the offenses that he was charged with in this specialized Indian Affairs Court, which is called the Court of Indian Offenses of the Ute Mountain Ute Agency, uh, was a different offense than the one he was convicted of later in federal court. Okay, I will admit here, I am very much a novice with Native American justice systems. They're very different from the rest of the country. So can you kind of explain the courts and what's going on here? It is. It's it's not something a lot of people know about. So there are these specialized courts. And just to really complicate matters even further, they're often called CFR courts or Code of Federal Regulations courts. Cool, that's that's not confusing. (laughs) Yeah. And that's because... They basically are located on Indian reservations where there's not enough judicial resources to have a tribal court. They were set up in kind of the late 19th century to assist with prosecuting tribal ordinances where there might not be resources for the tribe to prosecute those ordinances themselves. So those ordinances are, in effect, 
like rolled into the code of federal regulations and they are prosecuted in these uh, CFR courts. Uh, Denesby is a uh, Navajo man uh, who was charged with uh, sexual assault in, in both of these courts. He says that these CFR courts are essentially an arm of the federal government and that he therefore cannot be tried twice for the same crime by the same sovereign, that is the, the federal government. That's the whole way double jeopardy works or is supposed to. So <laughs> how did the justices react to that argument? Yeah, so the, here, the key takeaway is that um, the Supreme Court majority here in a decision written by Justice Amy Coney Barrett basically disagreed with the premise. And that is that the double jeopardy, uh, Amy Coney Barrett writes in her decision, only bars um, successive prosecutions of the same offense. And an offense is defined as basically the law, uh, an individual law by an individual sovereign. Now, when you have two sovereigns in the form of the United States, and the Ute Mountain Ute tribe, those are two separate sovereigns. And just because that they are enforced in the CFR courts, basically what they are, what Denespi had been charged for in the CFR court was in effect a, a violation of a tribal law for sexual assault and that they are therefore not the same offense. So here's kind of a key quote. It's a little bit complicated, but hopefully this kind of clarifies things. The Double Jeopardy Clause does not prohibit successive prosecutions by the same sovereign. It prohibits successive prosecutions for the same offense. And as we have already explained, an offense defined by one sovereign is different from an offense defined by another. Thus, even if Denesby is right that the federal government prosecuted his tribal offense, the clause did not bar the federal government from prosecuting him under the Major Crimes Act too. Does that kind of clear things up she's she's basically saying like yeah okay so your argument is that the the federal prosecutors brought the charges in the cfr court and then in federal court well it doesn't really matter who the prosecutors are it can be the same sovereign it's just it only matters insofar as the underlying offense is the same and because the authority here one is tribal one is federal they're not the same offense therefore no double jeopardy i get that line of reasoning but I have a feeling everyone didn't have that same opinion. What did some of the dissenting voices say? No, you're absolutely right. So Justice Gorsuch, who we've seen is pretty bullish in a lot of these uh, tribal law cases, he wrote a dissent that was joined by Justice Kagan and Sotomayor. And he, he like you, I'm sensing, uh, took issue with the idea that federal prosecutors could prosecute someone in a CFR court and months later, unveiled new charges in federal court for the same conduct. So let's just back up to like this particular case here. So Denesby's first prosecution was in 2017 in the CFR court, and he's convicted for assault and battery, but he is sentenced to time served. So he actually doesn't do any additional time in prison. Now, six months later, Uh, Federal prosecutors unveil charges in Colorado federal court for aggravated sexual abuse in Indian country for the same incident. Uh, This is a a sexual assault that he allegedly committed against an unidentified woman in a Colorado town on the Ute Mountain Ute Reservation. Now, in the federal case, in federal court, the judge ends up sentencing him to 30 years in federal prison, followed by 10 years of supervised. I mean, this is not academic, right? This is the difference between yeah. a 30-year prison sentence. And so you can obviously see why he's so vigorous in bringing this double jeopardy claim. So, so Gorsuch is like, 
Yeah, it, it it defies logic that federal prosecutors can, you know, just have a what he uses the term dress rehearsal in a CFR court, and then six months later turn around and obtain a thirty year prison sentence for the same underlying crime. And it's a really interesting dissent. He kind of like goes into the history of these these CFR courts dating back to the late nineteenth century when you know they were kind of seen as an effort to civilize. Native Americans, and they even prohibited like a lot of traditional tribal practices. Uh, those have been kind of cleared up now, but he says, and I'll, I'll quote him here, as we have seen, federal administrative authorities created this tribunal. Even today, federal officials continue to define and approve offenses for enforcement before it. They amend their list of offenses from time to time. They control the hiring and firing of prosecutors and magistrates. They open this court. They may close it. The Court of Indian Offenses was and remains a federal scheme. Not mincing words there, just no. <laughs> stark different interpretations of are these two separate sovereigns that can, you know, no double jeopardy or is this really all just a federal thing? Yeah, I mean, I, it was so funny because I was reading this case and you don't see a lot of like Gorsuch versus Barrett. No, that's unusual. Yeah, they're both really like compelling writers. Like you read Barrett's and she makes it she makes a very kind of compelling case under the text of the double jeopardies clause of the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution. And then you read Gorsuch and, you know, he he's obviously very persuasive in his own right. Totally different style of writer. But this one was a fascinating one. And uh, yeah, not a lineup you see every day. Well, let's pivot now to the second sort of, I, I want to say, batch of cases. I'm going to talk about two that were um, connected. I want to discuss some immigration rulings that came down on Monday. An issue near and dear to your heart. Right? Yeah, I, I've covered immigration a long time, launched some an immigration publication here. We've got some great reporters on it. So our own Mike LaSusa wrote about this for Law360. People should definitely read his coverage. But we have two decisions that immigration rights advocates are probably not too happy about. The justices ruled against non-U.S. citizens who challenged their lengthy detention while they sought relief from deportation. In one of the cases, the court ruled that immigrants do not have a right to a bond hearing when the government can show that they're a flight risk. And in the other the court said district courts lack the authority to order the government to provide bond hearings on a class-wide basis. So this is all about, can you get that hearing that could get you out of detention? And the justices said no. Let's uncouple these cases and take the first one about bond hearings. So what happened in that case? And I understand there was a little bit more agreement on the on the part of the of this court for the underlying result than, than in the second case that we can Yeah, that's right. So the first case involved a Mexican citizen who entered the U.S. without authorization and was ordered removed. This man was later detained. Um, he said he feared persecution in Mexico, so he sought what's called a withholding of removal. That's just a fancy way of saying he could stay in the United States if that was granted. Claims for withholding of removal can take months or even years to adjudicate. So the Supreme Court had to decide if he could be detained all that time while it made its way through the immigration system or whether he was entitled to a bond hearing before an immigration judge after six months of detention. If he had gotten a bond hearing, a hearing like that, the judge would assess the dangerousness and the flight risk of the immigrant in question and decide if they should be released under just federal supervision pending the resolution of their underlying immigration proceedings. So Sonia Sotomayor actually wrote the majority in this one. Uh, it was a case called Johnson versus Ortega Martinez. Sotomayor found um, that under the Immigration and Nationality Act, which is the main federal immigration law, 
There's no implicit requirement to provide these bond hearings for detainees after six months. And several other justices just joined this. It was um, seven of them joined with her in full. Breyer concurred in part and dissented in part. So a pretty resounding loss for the immigrant seeking a bond hearing here. So that seems pretty pretty straightforward. The, the, certain of these immigrants who are detained upon reentry are not entitled to bond hearings after six months of detention. Let's turn to the next one that got a little bit more messy in how the majority broke down. Yeah, I mean, I think this one's a little just more interesting in general. Um, just going to give the real top lines here, and then we can kind of maybe spin out into some impacts. This separate ruling was Garland versus Almond Gonzalez. Alito penned this one, saying that the INA bars courts from considering requests by classes of immigrants for injunctions that could interfere with the operation of law. This was, as we've talked about, also about bond hearings, but had this added wrinkle of asking the court to determine if the INA barred class-wide injunctive relief as had been ordered by a lower court. So Alito said a provision in the INA, quote, generally prohibits lower courts from entering injunctions that order federal officials to take or refrain from taking actions to enforce, implement, or otherwise carry out the specified statutory provisions. So you can't mess with with any statutory provision is what he said. Yeah, like that seemed to have been a mechanism that immigration advocates or immigrant rights groups had taken over the years to you know, try and get certain relief is actually bringing some of these class actions in the Supreme Court. It's basically foreclosing that as an avenue that they can take to challenge the conditions. This part definitely seems bigger to me. Well, number one, I mean, we, I think anybody listening to the show understands the importance of class actions and why they are brought. You know, there's large groups of people that may have similar claims and want similar outcomes. So it's both expedient for the judicial system, including immigration courts, if it was going that way. But it it's also a tool for advocates, right? Like you, you can get big injunctive relief that applies to everybody. So that's basically off the table, at least as far as bond hearings go. I did want to turn a little bit to, you know, what happens next. Um, overall, the outcomes here were not what immigration advocates were looking for. But there are a few things to note that maybe make this a little complicated going forward. While the Ortega Martinez case, while he lost his argument that the INA requires bond hearings for certain detained immigrants, the high court majority didn't decide whether immigration law or the Constitution's due process clause requires the government to release immigrants who've been held for prolonged periods. So the attorney in that case for Ortega Martinez said after the rulings, quote, Because the court's opinion makes clear that the lower courts can and should address these questions, we look forward to litigating them on remand. So that attorney, at least, sees some avenue that maybe you can't just hold people indefinitely. So that will still be litigated. At least in theory, there's there's the possibility that they could, you know, that courts could eventually entitle them to these bond hearings. But as of now, the statutory avenue has been completely shut off. That's right. So the other thing I wanted to bring up was um, some reporting that we have talking to um, Matt Adams. He's um, someone that works at the Northwest Immigrant Rights Project who represents the Gonzalez plaintiffs. That's the class action side of this. And he said it's possible the majority's ruling could impact ongoing cases where states and others are trying to force the Biden administration to either halt or continue certain immigration policies. The high court is currently weighing one of those cases, which centers on a Texas federal judge's order that the Biden administration continue the 
Remain in Mexico policy. It's a Trump-era program that forces asylum seekers to wait in Mexico while their claims are processed. So because that also uh, relates to um, statute here and the way that things came out in that class action one, it's going to be sort of interesting to see if that case is impacted. So this could have ripple effects is what I'm saying throughout many other immigration things that we're watching. Fascinating discussion there. Um, Probably a lot more to come. Thank you so much, Amber, uh, for joining us today. I think that's about all the time we have, but it's always a pleasure chatting about all the high court stuff. And like I said, I think you really lived up to your your billing as a fellow SCOTUS nerd. Really appreciate that, Jimmy. Uh, love to keep that bona fide alive for myself. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, our executive producer and co-host today, Amber McKinney. Uh, contributing reporters, Andrew Wesney and Mike LaSusa. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. And for more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. Thanks for listening. <laughs>